morning. Now you've chosen a, a very good morning to come along. We are preaching on Revelation 16 and the later part of that, which is the Battle of Armageddon and the End of the World. <laughs> We're usually uh, puppy dogs and butterflies here, but um, yeah, I noticed the locals laughed about that as well. So if you would please turn to Revelation chapter 16. Now, as most of you know, World War I was referred to as being the war to end all wars. And the reason it was called this was because there was people around who felt that it would lead to the destruction of the sorts of governments and the sorts of attitudes that cause war. Well, it didn't pan out that way. History tells us that in the hundred years since World War I has ended, there has been numerous wars and conflicts around the globe. So that expectation of everlasting peace, it didn't quite materialise. You may also recall that a long time ago, in a galaxy far, far away, there was another great battle. And by all appearances, this battle brought peace to the universe and once and for all, good had triumphed over evil. So way back in 1983, when I was somewhere around there anyway, I trotted off to the movie theatre to watch the latest movie, Star Wars, The Return of the Jedi. Now I went there with a lot of anticipation about this movie and my mates were right. It was a really, it was the best movie ever. Anyway, I wasn't disappointed. I was treated to new characters and aliens, swashbuckling adventure in the opening scenes and of course the ultimate battle of good versus evil. In the Battle of Endor, a ragtag collection of rebels in second-hand spaceships assisted by primitive teddy bear-like creatures took on the might and the power of imperial forces. The evil empire which was a powerful military force with superior technology, outnumbered and outgunned the rebels. So the Battle of Endor was the definitive battle in the Star Wars saga. And of course, the good guys won. The evil empire was defeated. The emperor and his right-hand man, Darth Vader, were no more. Balance was restored and peace was celebrated by everybody. Now, maybe before I spoke about that, I probably should have given you a bit of a spoiler alert just in case you haven't seen the movie. But if you haven't seen a movie that was put out 35 years ago, chances are you won't see it any time soon. So anyway, for us Star Wars fans, we rubbed our eyes and we got on with life and we were comforted by the fact that everything was right in the universe. But not so. Some 30 years later, Disney started releasing new Star Wars movies. A new evil has arisen. Our heroes are rolled out in their wheelchairs and their Zimmer frames. <laughs> and alongside them are a new cast of heroes. And they are taking on this new threat and no doubt there is going to be another ultimate battle to end all battles coming to a picture theatre near you soon. In this morning's scripture we are focusing on the last two bold judgments. These are the final judgments which are to be poured out upon a sinful world and these two judgments will usher in the second coming of Jesus. 
Now one of these judgments is the preparation for the great final battle of the world. The ultimate and final battle between good and evil, between God and his enemies. This indeed will be the battle to end all battles. There will be everlasting peace and there will be no sequels. Let us turn to our text, Revelation chapter 16 and we're reading from verse 12. Then the sixth angel poured out his bowl on the great river Euphrates and its water was dried up so that the way of the kings from the east might be prepared. And I saw three unclean spirits like frogs coming out of the mouth of the dragon, out of the mouth of the beast and out of the mouth of the false prophet. For they are spirits of demons performing signs which go out to the kings of the earth and of the whole world to gather them to the battle of that great day of God Almighty. Behold, I am coming as a thief. Blessed is he who watches and keeps his garments, lest he walk naked and they see his shame. And they gathered them together to the place called in Hebrew, Armageddon. Then the seventh angel poured out his bowl into the air and a loud voice came out of the temple of heaven from the throne saying, It is done. And there were noises and thunderings and lightnings and there was a great earthquake, such a mighty and great earthquake as had not occurred since men were on the earth. Now the great city was divided into three parts and the cities of the nations fell and great Babylon was remembered before God to give her the cup of the wine of the fierceness of his wrath. Then every island fled away and the mountains were not found and great hail from heaven fell upon men, each hailstone about the weight of a talent. Men blasphemed God because of the plague of the hail, since the plague was exceedingly great. Let us pray. Lord, we just thank you that we can come and sit under your word this morning. And Lord, we pray as, as we move through this passage, which is quite a grim and, and difficult passage, Lord, we pray that you open up our hearts to your spirit that, Lord, that we will understand what you are saying here and, Lord, draw encouragement from what um, appears to be such a negative uh, thing there, Lord. So, Lord, we pray that that as I speak uh, to this scripture, please, Lord, give me clarity and uh, be able to speak in a way uh, that brings understanding. But, Lord, most of all, we pray that you speak to us individually through your word this morning. Amen. Okay, so we're going to start with the sixth bowl, which is the drying up of the Euphrates River. Now, before we get into the uh, nitty-gritty of this uh, vision, let's look at some of the uh, geography that's involved. And yes, I know that geography may not be the most exciting subject, but as we look at the details of these geographical aspects, we get a better understanding of the bigger picture of what's happening here. 
So let's look first of all at the Euphrates River. The Euphrates River is the largest river in Western Asia and it runs from Turkey down to where it meets the Tigris River in Iraq and from there the combined rivers run into the Persian Gulf. The significance of the Euphrates River in our text is that it served as a natural barrier in the ancient world. It was sort of like a a boundary between east and west. For the Romans it served as a boundary to their bitter enemies, the Parthians. And for the Israelites it served as a boundary against the Assyrians, the Babylonians and the Persians. Now in the day of um, the Israelites, if this river was to be dried up and it was to become dry ground, armies from across the other side of the Euphrates could move forward unhindered. So that's the Euphrates River. So let's come to the place that is called Armageddon. In verse 16, John tells us that the kings of the earth will gather in a place called Armageddon. Now in Hebrew, this word is actually two words. It's the word Har, H-A-R, and Mageddon. And when we translate those to English, the word Har is a mountain, and Megiddon translates to a place called Megiddo. So it is the mountain of Megiddo. Megiddo was an ancient city that was located in the Jezreel Valley in the northern Israel. And Megiddo was a strategic site that was the scene of many historical battles. And this point will become more relevant as we explore this text a bit further. Now if you were to look at this vision literally, God will cause the Euphrates River to dry up. Satan and his crew will send out unclean spirits and these unclean spirits will go out and deceive the kings of the east and the kings of the whole earth and what happens is that these kings and their armies will cross the dried up Euphrates River and gather in the Jezreel Valley at Megiddo. They will be gathered there to wage war against God and to wage war against God's people. And that's where this particular vision leaves off. The actual battle hasn't taken place. They are just gathered there for the battle. And to see what happens next you would need to fast forward to Revelation 18 and no doubt we'll be uh, looking at that in a few weeks' time. Now there's a couple of issues with only looking at a literal outworking of this vision. First of all, these are the bold judgments. They are global judgments. As we have moved through the different types of judgments, we have seen them intensified as we have moved on. They have intensified as we have moved from the seal judgments through the trumpet judgments and now onto the bowl judgments. The bowl judgments are universal in nature. What we find as we look deeper into what takes place is that there is great significance in what these things represent and symbolise. And as Calphane has previously pointed out, if we get caught up in all the details, and in this case the geographical details, we can miss the bigger picture. That's not to say that God will not literally fulfil these visions. That may well happen. There may well be darkness throughout the whole earth. The Euphrates River may well dry up. But there's more to it. There's a bigger picture than that. So let's explore all of this further. First of all in verse 12, the Euphrates River dried up. 
Then the sixth angel poured out his bowl on the great river Euphrates and its water was dried up so that the way of the kings from the east might be prepared. So the great Euphrates river, that is the object of the sixth bowl. Now there's an Old Testament pattern in the drying up of or the diverting of waters, rivers and seas. And what is significant about these events is that it is God who has brought them about. And in all cases, God dried up rivers and seas to either facilitate deliverance or to facilitate judgment. So let's look at some of the examples which will clarify this point. The most obvious example is the parting of the Red Sea back in Exodus. So God dried up the Red Sea so that the Israelites could cross over and be delivered from bondage that they were living under in Egypt. And we can read about that in Exodus 14. Later on the Jordan River was dried up so that God's people could cross over into the Promised Land. So they were delivered into the land of their inheritance. So they were delivered out of bondage and they were delivered into their inheritance and all of this occurred through the drying up of waters. Now there is another not so apparent example. During the time that the people of Israel were being held in captivity in Babylon, God's judgment on the Babylonians came about when the Euphrates River had its waters diverted. This meant that the Persians could enter the city and overthrow the Babylonians. Cyrus, who was interestingly called the king of the east, had the waters of the Euphrates River diverted so that he could invade and take control of Babylon. Now Isaiah prophesied about this event and these verses highlight that God brought this event about to bring his judgement onto Babylon. Uh, and this is Isaiah from Isaiah chapter 44, verses 27 to 28. Who says to the deep, be dry, and I will dry up your rivers? Who says of Cyrus, he is my shepherd, and he shall perform all my pleasure? Saying to Jerusalem, you shall be built, and to the temple, your foundations shall be laid. So in this case the water was dried up so God's judgment could be delivered and God's judgment was delivered upon the Babylonians. Later the Israelites would be delivered. They would return to Israel and rebuild Jerusalem and rebuild the temple. So what we see here are some clear parallels between these Old Testament events and what we find here in Revelation 16. In Revelation 16, the drying up of the Euphrates River at first glance appears to be purely the avenue by which the forces of Satan are able to gather and march against God and his people. And indeed that is the case. However, the ultimate purpose is that they are gathered together to face their final judgment. In their minds they are amassing to fight against God and to wipe out the church. Now what happened in ancient Babylon is a foreshadow of what is described here in Revelation 16. In Revelation the significance of the drying up of the Euphrates River 
is the global removal of the boundary between God's people and their enemies. And this allows the enemies of God to rally against him, but ultimately they will face his judgement. Verse 12, the kings of the east. Now quite often when people think of the kings of the east, they equate this reference to the nation of China. However, this reference to the kings of the east is a standard Old Testament language to describe all the enemies of Israel, the enemies of God's people. The kings of the east was a standard expression of anyone who would seek to invade Israel. And it didn't matter whether they actually came from the north or the south or the west, they were called the kings of the east. This is further expanded on in verse 14 in which the gathering army is referred to not just as the kings of the east but as the kings of the earth and the whole world. So this is going to be a global judgement on the global enemies of God, not just one nation such as China. Now verses 13 to 14, the unclean spirits. And I saw three unclean spirits like frogs coming out of the mouth of the dragon, out of the mouth of the beast and out of the mouth of the false prophet. For they are spirits of demons performing signs which go out to the kings of the earth and of the whole world to gather them to the battle of that great day of God Almighty. So what we see here is the unholy trinity coming into play. That is Satan, the beast and the false prophet. And they send forth unclean spirits who go out to deceive the nations. These spirits come out of their mouths which signify the lies and the deceptions that they speak. They deceive by performing signs. And who are they deceiving? They are deceiving the kings of the earth and the whole world. They deceive them so that they will align themselves to Satan and the beast. The deception will cause them to gather together to do battle against God and against God's people. Now we see here that these spirits are described as frogs and we might think that Kermit's getting a bad rap here. But if we once again turn to the ancient Israelites we can get an understanding of what this description is actually illustrating to us. Remember Exodus and the plague of the frogs. The frogs swarmed the land causing all sorts of chaos. The other thing we find is that frogs were considered as ceremonially unclean. So it is emphasising the uncleanness of these demonic spirits. Uh, We can see that in Leviticus. So this description adds to the picture of these spirits or demons. And what we see unfolding here is that Great deception is spreading throughout the world. Now, is this not something that we actually witness happening around us today? There appears to be more and more opposition to Christ as time goes on. Jesus has no place in our schools. His name has no right to be spoken in our councils or in our government, in our parliament. Um, Just the other week, I saw Richard Dawkins on New Zealand TV And Richard Dawkins is a um, renowned anti-theist and he was expounding the evils of religions such as Christianity. So popular thinking and culture is gradually coming to the point 
where there is no longer room for Christianity or reason for Christianity. And I haven't even mentioned real persecution where Christians are suffering physically or have had their rights or freedoms taken away. So according to this vision, this situation will escalate to the point where the enemies of God will unite and seek to wipe out Christianity once and for all. Now there's a couple of things that we can take from this. Firstly, we shouldn't be surprised when we face increasing opposition to our faith. We see it clearly spelled out in scriptures like this and in other scriptures within the Bible. And it's not going to get any better. Secondly, there is a spiritual force behind these things. Sometimes as Christians in the modern world we can forget about the spiritual realm that is around us. The demonic forces that are influencing opposition to God on a global and on a local scale. The reason the enemies of God are galvanising against them is because of these unclean demonic forces which are going forth like a swarm of frogs lying and deceiving to all those who will listen to them and are dazzled by the signs that they perform. You just need to look at the media and the internet. Sometimes it's like an incessant croaking, a barrage of misinformation designed to turn people against God. Ephesians chapter 6 verse 12 For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the powers of this dark world and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. Now with that thought in mind of what we are up against, let's look at verse 15. We're reading about evil spirits that are going out from Satan and the beast. We're learning about this great gathering army and inserted in the middle of all of this is the word of an encouragement. It's like, stop, and here's a word from your sponsor. What is really interesting is that verse 15 are the words of Christ. And we haven't seen this since Revelation chapter 3 where Christ was speaking to the seven churches. Behold, I am coming as a thief. Blessed is he who watches and keeps his garments lest he walk naked and they see his shame. One of the things about preaching a sermon series on a book of the Bible is that the same things can be repeated over and over again and that's because quite often these books of the Bible are intended to be read through in one reading and the same things just flow right through them. And we see that here again this morning. God's people are given a word of encouragement and again we are encouraged to persevere. We are encouraged to persevere as all around us the enemies of God are gathering to oppose him and to have a crack at us. So what does Jesus actually say here? Well firstly he says that his return will be sudden. He will come as a thief. He will return when he is not expected. And not only that, but there's also a surety about his return. It's not like, I might come back if that's okay with you guys. 
No, the language is strong and it leaves no room for interpretation. Behold, I am coming. I will return. Secondly, he talks about how those who are prepared are blessed. They won't be caught off guard as if they are naked and their shame is exposed for all to see. The call is stay awake, be prepared, be ready. Now this is not all about being prepared as in trying to work out the exact date that Christ will return or the circumstances in which it will happen. No, it's about being ready by living lives that are right before God. Be dressed, be ready. It's about keeping short accounts with God and living daily in his presence. Verse 16 So we come away from that interlude where Christ speaks his encouragement and we come to that phrase, Armageddon. And they gathered them together to the place called in Hebrew Armageddon. So as I mentioned earlier, the translation of Armageddon is the mountain of Megiddo. Now one of the problems with interpreting this vision literally is that there is no such place. There is no mountain at Megiddo. There is a hill. The ancient site of Megiddo is called Tau Megiddon. So that's two words. And the word Tau means hill. So it translates as the hill of Megiddo. And when we look at the, uh, the picture up there, uh, we see that it's not a mountain. It's just a small hill. Not only that, the plains surrounding Megiddo are small. So there actually isn't enough room there for all these great armies of the world to, to amass and to gather. So what is the point of this reference? Why does this verse identify the gathering point as Armageddon if it doesn't compute physically? Well firstly let's look to a biblical metaphor. In the Bible the term mountain means kings and nations of the earth. Secondly, we look at the fact that Megiddo is an area that is synonymous with great battles. It's a bit like Waterloo or Gettysburg. It's, it's that sort of reference. At least 200 significant battles have taken place in the valley of Megiddo. Now if we want to look at examples of biblical battles that took place there, we'll see battles such as the one between Barak and the Canaanites which we can read about in Judges 4. That's when Deborah was, was the judge. Then there is the victory of Gideon over the Midianites in Judges 7. And in all of these battles, the enemies of God were defeated. So Armageddon is the staging point where the kings and nations of the earth come together, those who oppose God, they will gather to wage war in that great final battle at the end of the world. William D. Mounts, he's a um, New Testament scholar. I, I hadn't heard of him before I did a little bit of research into this. But this is what he says about Armageddon. Geography is not the major concern. Wherever it takes place, Armageddon is symbolic of the final overthrow of all the forces of evil by the might and power of God. The great conflict 
between God and Satan, Christ and Antichrist, good and evil that lies behind the perplexing course of history will in the end issue a final struggle in which God will emerge victorious and take with him all who have placed their faith in him. Now one point that I missed out on is that we usually refer to this final great battle as the Battle of Armageddon. And Armageddon is merely the staging point of where this battle will take place. But if we are to look in verse 14, we see that it's actually called something else. We see that the battle is actually called the battle of that great day of God Almighty. And that's what God refers to it as uh, through John. So we see another recurring theme of Revelation here. God wins. Good will triumph over evil and I suspect that that battle will be pretty one-sided. So that's the second spoiler for today. God wins. Let's move on to the seventh bowl. The seventh bowl, the earth utterly shaken. The seventh bowl is the final judgment poured out and it marks the second coming of Christ. It is paralleled by the seventh seal of judgment and also the seventh trumpet judgment. It is the proclamation of the end and with it comes the final destruction of the corrupt world system. So from verse 17, Then the seventh angel poured out his bowl into the air and a loud voice came out of the temple of heaven from the throne saying, It is done. And there were noises and thunderings and lightnings and there was a great earthquake, such a mighty and great earthquake as had not occurred since men were on the earth. So let's take a little bit of a break there and quickly look at what's happening here. Firstly, the bowl of judgment is poured into the air. Now, I looked into the significance of pouring out the bowl into the air and what I came back with was linked to verse 21, which which comes a little bit later on, which talks about the mighty hailstones falling upon men. And this hailstorm is a direct link to Exodus and the plague of hailstones. And we'll come back to that in a minute. But there is also a reference to the air being associated to demonic activity. And Satan is also referred to as being the prince of the air in Ephesians 2. So, Similar to the uh, plague of darkness which we heard about last week where the bowl was poured out upon the throne of the beast, it may be in this case a direct outpouring of God's wrath upon the heart of evil. And the other thing is, is of course air is found worldwide so this may be once again highlighting that these judgments are global. And then there was a loud voice calling out from the temple of heaven and presumably this is either the voice of God the Father or Christ. And when we say loud, we mean that it will be heard everywhere. So what does this loud voice declare? It declares that it is done. And this statement again points to the fact that this judgment is God's final outpouring of his wrath upon this corrupt world at the end of time. Now there's a couple of significant points that we can take from this. 
First of all, what is done? Well, if we look back at Revelation 15, we see that there were seven angels who were holding the seven last plagues, uh, and which would bring God's wrath to completion. So the outpouring of God's judgment upon the world throughout history has come to an end at this point. It is done. Also the phrase, it is done or it is finished, was uttered by Jesus upon the completion of the work of the cross. So this phrase is declared at Jesus' first incarnation and will be uttered again at his second incarnation. Then there will be noises, thunder, lightning and a great earthquake, the likes of which has never been seen before. These things are another symbol of the outpouring of God's final judgement. Will this actually happen? Probably, possibly. But this is what these things symbolise. Once again, going back to the Old Testament, we are reminded of God's appearance at Mount Sinai in Exodus 19. Thunder roared and lightning flashed. Of course, there's many prophecies and other um, references to thunder and lightning in regards to uh, the bringing of God's judgement. One of the most interesting ones comes from Isaiah 29, verses 6 to 7. I, the Lord of heaven's armies, will act for you with thunder and earthquake and great noise, with whirlwind, whirlwind and storm and consuming fire. All the nations fighting against Jerusalem will vanish like a dream. Those who are attacking her walls will vanish like a vision in the night. Lightning and thunder is seen throughout Revelation and elsewhere throughout Scripture is God's judgment. The great earthquake again speaks of God's might, power and judgment. So what is the result of all these things happening? Well, it makes for some pretty grim reading. Picking up from verse 19. Now the great city was divided into three parts and the cities of the nations fell and great Babylon was remembered before God to give her the cup of the wine of the fierceness of his wrath. Then every island fled away and the mountains were not found. And great hail from heaven fell upon men, each hailstone about the weight of a talent. Men blasphemed God because of the plague of the hail, since that plague was exceedingly great. So firstly, let's look at this great city which is divided into three. Where is this great city? Well, it's not Rome and it's not even Jerusalem. It is Babylon. Now, of course, we're not talking of the literal ancient city of Babylon. That's long gone. We are talking about the corrupt world system which is comprised of individuals, of institutions, whether they be secular, philosophical or religious. We're talking of governments and of military forces, all of which oppose God and who hate him. They are unrepentant, as we will see in verse 21 and have also seen in last week's passage. It is this Babylon that will be judged and destroyed at the end of age. 
Then we see that the outpour judgment will affect, will affect the entire world. It talks about how cities of the nations fell. The destruction of Babylon is further expounded and explained in the next verse. The great Babylon was remembered before God to give her the cup of the wine of the fierceness of his wrath. Then in verse 20 we read about how every island fled away and the mountains could not be found. Now while again this may actually happen, when we look at biblical metaphors we see that islands represent pagan Gentiles and as I mentioned earlier mountains represent kings and nations of the earth. They will all be overcome and judged at the return of Christ. Now finally verse 21, this great plague of hail and if we remember back to to Exodus of course there was that great plague of hail which was localised in Egypt it was described as a great plague so it was pretty full on and now we have this final worldwide plague of hail at the end of of the judgments you know what I found on the internet I found a um, a website that converts biblical weights into metric weights, which was really quite handy. Uh, so what I did was I typed in one talent, so this, they're talking about this hailstone weighs one talent, and what it came back with was 34.2 kilograms. That's one big hailstone. When I was a teenager, I was caught out in a hailstorm in Brisbane now they breed hailstones pretty big over there so I had to find some shelter. But it's nothing like what we're reading about here, is it? I wouldn't think that hiding under a tree would help much. So this great hailstorm comes down from heaven upon men and this is again symbolic of God's judgement and God's punishment upon the unfaithful. And what is the response? It is to blaspheme God. Like Pharaoh, their hearts are hardened. There is no repentance. And I suspect at this point that it is too late for that anyway. So that's the seventh bowl of God's wrath poured out upon the sinful world in the last days and at which point Christ returns. So there you have it. The end of the world. I think we could all do with a cup of tea. <laughs> but before we end our service, I would like to bring you back to verse 15. In the middle of all this judgment and the wrath of God being poured out, we hear the voice of mercy. And the voice of mercy comes from Christ. Behold, I am coming as a thief. Blessed is he who watches and keeps his garments, lest he walk naked and they see his shame. Now one of the things that I really struggle with when it comes to sermons is coming up with a title. Um, it's just one of those things I find really, really difficult. Well today I chose to put the application question into the, um, into the title, Are You Ready? I was originally going to go with Are You Clothed? But I thought that might raise some eyebrows as we're walking in with our little handouts. Of course I'm clothed. What sort of outfit are you running here? Um, we're not running that sort of outfit. 
and we'll recommend other churches if that's what you want to do. Anyway, this question, are you ready, is both to those who are in Christ and those who are not. Jesus says that these things will come upon us suddenly and there's many scriptures that tell us about that. It's, it's like life is going on as per normal and then suddenly bang. You know, scriptures such as one will be taken, one will be left. If you are not a believer here today, I ask you to come to Christ and to seek him while he may be found. Let him place a seal upon you which means that you belong to him and that he will protect you from these things. Talk to someone here about it. Most of the people here know Christ. They know what it's like to be um, to not know Christ beforehand. So they can talk you through that. Or come and see one of the elders. Uh, to the believer, the same question. Are you clothed? Are you ready? Are you living as one who belongs to Christ? Are you keeping those short accounts with him? Let us pray. Lord, we just thank you so much for the encouragement that you give us through your word. And Lord, we thank you that, Lord, that we do belong to you. That, Lord, we do have your name sealed upon our foreheads. That, Lord, you will protect us from all these things. Father, we just pray as as we go forth this week, Lord, may we again seek you out. And, Lord, seek you and Lord, keep those short accounts with you. May our lives be lives that do reflect your glory. And may we be prepared in our hearts for you at all times, Lord. In Jesus' name, Amen.